0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. I want to leave our study of the Thessalonians series for just a small break and give you a little bit of rest before we begin Paul's second letter to that great church. And as you know, our study has concentrated on the second coming of Christ and how we should live as we wait for Christ to return. Uh, Paul's epistles were letters to believers that were assembled and they were covenanted together in the gospel and these made up the churches and places that Paul traveled to preach. The church is Christ's body on earth. This is the group that he commissioned with the gospel, and the church is responsible to represent him and and to uh, evangelize the world with this great message of of salvation for his people. Now in the past weeks we've discussed fellowship in the church, we've talked about ministry in the church, We've talked about church worship, we find all of those things in the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, and the concentration has been on this, on this body of believers that, that we are together as we work for the cause of Christ. And in consideration of that, I think it's good for us just to pull back a little and to concentrate on the Lord of the church and what he did to make eternal salvation the possession of those who believe. Before there was a church, before there could be this church, there must be a cross. Before there was a resurrection, there had to be a cross. Before there was forgiveness of our sins, there, there had to be a cross. And if we're to be taken up to be with the Lord forever in His second coming, it, it's all because there, there was a cross. The cross was necessary for us to be saved from the awful consequences of our sin. And so if we are to be saved from them... There must be a cross. Now today I'd like to take us back to the cross. And I want us to think for a few minutes about what happened there and why that we are here today in the worship of Jesus Christ, His body, His church. Now if you'll look together with me in the Gospel of Mark chapter 15, this is the account of the crucifixion as it was recorded by John Mark. In Mark chapter 15... And verse number 16, And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band. And they clothed him with purple, and plaited a crown of thorns, and put it about his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed, and it spit upon him. And bowing their knees, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place called Golgotha, which is, being interpreted, the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, And he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests, mocking, said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then if you'll just glance down at verse number 37, you'll see, that Jesus gave up his spirit and he died. Almost 20 years ago, I was working in Tampa, Florida. Um, Each month, I would spend three weeks in Florida and one month here, or one week here, rather. And and in those many months that I was there, I visited several different churches on Sunday. I, I attended one church most of the time, and I liked that because the pastor was committed to have two services on Sunday. Now, it was hard to find a church that did it then. It's much harder to find one now. But I liked him because he and the church had a commitment to be in God's house on Sunday and to be taught the Word of God. And I also liked it because he preached good, solid messages from the King James. On other occasions, I attended a church, and there were likes and dislikes with that one. And one of the likes was a pastor who was one of the best preachers, if not the best preacher that I've ever heard. He soon left that church. But on this Sunday that I was there, uh, one of the Sundays, I heard him preach a great message on the cross. And I remember that message that he's preached for for these many years. You know, I forget sermons. I forget some of my own sermons, just like you forget them in about a week's time. But this this sermon that he preached was about the cross, and it was a sermon that just stuck with me all of that time. And I'm sure that you, as the Church of Christ, you are who are believers, you are very much cognizant that all aspects of Christianity hinge on this most important event, and that is Christ's death. While Paul taught the church many things in each of his letters, he specifically said to the Corinthian church that he didn't want to know anything among them but Christ crucified. Now, that didn't mean that he wasn't going to preach any sermons except those that are about the cross, but he did mean that anything that he taught them was because of the cross, and he would never attempt anything that didn't lead them back to this singular act that reconciled the church to God. And so the Apostle Paul gave his life for the gospel of the cross. Now, in this message, I want to speak to you about what the cross ...meant to Christ... ...and what it means to us... ...is it anchors us to the Christian faith... ...everything that we are... ...is because of the cross... ...and I want to show you... four ways... ...that the cross speaks to us... ...the cross has something to say... ...about the person who hung there... ...it has something to say... ...about the people who put him there... ...it says something about the God... ...who allowed him to be there... ...and then lastly... ...it speaks something about why... He was there. Now today I only have time to consider one of these. And we notice about the cross. That the cross speaks about what happened to the person who was on the cross. And what was it that happened to him? He was rejected. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. The rejection of our Lord. The cross speaks of his rejection. Rejection. Now, we might think that the most significant rejection was from the people that put him on the cross. Now, we've just read that while Christ was hanging on the cross, the people passed by, they shook their heads at him, they reviled him, they mocked him, they made curses against him. And these are the very same people that had seen his miracles during his ministry. They'd heard him preach And they knew that He said that He was the Son of God. And they were convinced that if He was who He said He was, that He shouldn't be hanging on a cross. Certainly, He shouldn't be crucified as a common criminal as those two others that were with Him. And so they said, if you are indeed the Christ, if you are the King of Israel, then come down from the cross. And if you come down, we'll see and we'll believe. And if you are truly God, you must have the power to come down. But the people rejected him as their king, they rejected him as the Messiah, they rejected him as their deliverer, and as far as they were concerned, this man that was hanging on the cross was a liar, he was an imposter, he was a blasphemer, and according to their law, he was worthy of death. That is a very significant rejection, isn't it? But that rejection of the people was not the most significant part of his rejection, I want you to notice again verse number 34 and the cry of Christ as he hung on the cross. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is the most significant of Christ's rejection. He was forsaken by men, but far more significantly, he was forsaken by God. Now, in years past, you've heard me mention on several occasion occasions Martin Luther's struggle with this verse. Luther, the great reformer, was studying this passage and in deep contemplation, he came across these words that shook him down to his soul. At that time, he was writing a commentary on the death of Christ. And when he came to this part, he just sat motionless, he was... Almost in a trance, he didn't move, he didn't speak. And then finally he got up from his desk and he shook his head and deep down in his spirit he said, what can these words mean? What does this mean when it says that God forsook God? What can these words possibly mean? God forsaking God. And Luther was perplexed by it because he knew that Jesus was God. That he was God who was hanging on the cross and he couldn't understand what this meant, that God should forsake God. What does that mean? It is truly perplexing. And if we look at it on the surface, we can determine the meaning of the words. Mark records these words in Aramaic. That's the language of Jesus' childhood. And so he cried out first, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God. And then Lama Sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? Forsake, Why? Have you forsaken? Forsaken, that's a very harsh word. That's a word of rejection. Oh, it's it's terrible when a wife or husband forsakes each other. It's terrible when children forsake their parents. It's terrible when a child is abandoned by his parents. And so on our level, humanly speaking, we can certainly understand this word for sake. We understand it all too well. We know its implications. But as we look at this and what Jesus said, we have to go much deeper than human relationships. This is the Son of God who is being rejected by His Father. And that is the ultimate rejection. What men did to Him was not the worst. Because you can read this story and all the things that happened leading up to the cross and this crucifixion, and you can see that Jesus was able to endure everything that man did to Him. He endured the beatings. He took the slaps. He took the fist. He took the cat of nine tails that cut against His back. He took nails that were driven into His hands and His feet. And none of that caused Jesus to utter a word. Isaiah's prophecy says... He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He took all of that without a word. But while he's hanging on the cross and he suffered the rejection of his father, this is what caused him to cry out in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus spoke to his father, he always called him father. Not once in Scripture do we find him calling God anything but his father, but not this time. This time he called him God. He didn't call him his father. Now, to know that God had forsaken him caused him to speak. He never retaliated against those who crucified him. No, these are the words that gave utterance to the deepest agony of his soul. That is the father's rejection. I'd like you to note some details about the rejection of our Lord. First, the rejection was scriptural. It was scriptural. And this is so remarkable because when Jesus was hanging on the cross, his mind was so saturated with Old Testament scriptures that what he said was taken directly from the Bible. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to this remarkable scripture in Psalm 22, This is Old Testament prophecy written by David, and it predicted the cross ten centuries before Jesus was crucified. If you'll find Psalm chapter 22, look at verse number 1, and here you see the words that would be spoken on the cross centuries later. David wrote in the 22nd Psalm, verse number 1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words, my roaring, Go on reading in the psalm, and as you do, you see that it perfectly outlines the sufferings of Christ on the cross. Verses 7 and 8 speak of how he was mocked. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Verse number 15 speaks of his thirst. In the Gospel of John, John recorded those next words from the cross in his suffering. He said, I thirst. In verse number 16 of the Psalm, it says, they pierced my hands and my feet. And that was a prophecy of crucifixion hundreds of years before it was used as a means of crucifixion. Verse 18 talks about how they gambled over his clothing. And so we see from the prophets of the Old Testament that Jesus' death was not an accident. This was determined by God. We see it in the Scriptures. And at Pentecost, when Peter preached, he said this was by God's predetermination. It's God's predetermination that His own people would crucify Him. And so he said to the Jews that he was preaching to on Pentecost, Jews that many of them were probably at the cross, he said, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. I want you to see that it was deliberate. It wasn't an accident of fate. Jesus knew the cross was coming. He knew the rejection was coming before he ever stepped down from glory to become a man. Constantly in his teachings, Jesus told the disciples he was going to die. He said, this is the purpose that I came into this world. From that moment that he was born in a manger, throughout his boyhood, into his manhood, on into his public ministry, this is the intention all along. And do you remember at his baptism, that's the inauguration of Jesus into his public ministry, at the baptism, uh, there he was taken by John the Baptist who said, I shouldn't be baptizing you, you should baptize me. But what was it all about? Baptism, what is that? We're going to see it in a few minutes. What is that? Well, it speaks of death, burial, and resurrection. It's a sign. And this means, of course, that through his entire life, through Jesus' entire life, this day of rejection was constantly on his mind. The Scriptures foretold it. He quoted from the Scriptures. He knew it. He experienced it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, He knew that he would drink that bitter cup of death. And it was in that cup that the sins of the world were placed on him. And it was the rejection of the Father because of it. Oh, next we see the rejection was spiritual. It was spiritual. This is the worst part of the suffering. Grief of mind, agony of soul, suffering in the spirit. All of that is worse than physical pain. You know, you can endure a great deal of physical pain as long as you're strong in your spirit. When you know that God's with you, you can go through much spiritual suffering or much physical suffering. Um, As you know, my wife is is gravely ill with an incurable disease. There are times when I I think and she thinks that she can't endure one more day of pain. And I've heard her in the worst of times say, I don't know how... I can go on. I don't know how I can live like this any longer. I've seen her go through so much, but I've also seen that every day she plows through that physical suffering. She's here today. She goes through the physical suffering because she knows that God is with her. Now, she might not understand, as we often don't, why this happened to her. We don't always understand what God is doing, but we must be content that God has His purpose. And so Christians can go through much and they are determined to withstand great physical suffering because they know that God is with them. But Jesus could not say that God was with him in his physical agony. Now even when a person faces death, he can say as David did, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Jesus couldn't say that because he was alone. He was forsaken by men. We see that in the scriptures. And very clearly he was forsaken by God. And so even when he went through the valley of the shadow of death, there was no one with him. God was not with him. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father turned his back on him. I know that we can't begin to understand that. We don't know that side of God, do we? We've never seen that side of God. We don't think of sin as horrible as God sees it. We we can go through our lives and just go on doing the things that we do and just sin against God like nothing's going to happen because of that. We don't really understand how bad that sin is in the eyes of God. Now, that's one of the things that we're going to discuss in the next message. We'll discuss the righteousness of God and why God must do this to His Son here we find this spiritual separation. There's desertion from God the Father. He could hardly bear that thought that the relationship between him and the Father would be broken in this way. Do you understand that in the history of the Trinity, if I could put it that way, that's really not a way that you can say it, but in the history of the Trinity, there was never any separation. Never any separation of any kind. And so we, we look at this and we think, what, what could be so significant that it would cause this kind of rejection? And the only answer that we can come to is that it must be only because of God's overflowing love. It must be because of His abundant love to create man and to redeem him from the awful condition of sin. See, there are many people who, who teach that God was lonely... There are many who teach that Jesus was up in heaven and He just couldn't be happy in heaven because He didn't have us. No, God is supremely happy. God is happy in Himself. There's nothing that adds to God's happiness. If it was true that God needed us, then we would have power over God. But understand this very clearly. We or God does not need us. We don't complete God. So understand, He never needed us, but was because it was because God had so much love, love that can't be contained, that it overflowed and showered on us. And because Christ had so much love, he was willing to endure what never happened in time or eternity. The Father and the Son were separated. Now that, that spiritual suffering is far beyond human comprehension. We have no concept what takes place within the Godhead. We can't understand the agony of spiritual rejection. Jesus cried because of it. Now, when we suffer in spirit, we know, we still know that God is with us. We have what he couldn't have when he was rejected by his father. Now, thirdly, the rejection was substantial. It was substantial. It was real. This wasn't imaginary. This is not an illusion. Christ didn't suppose something that wasn't true. Now, in the New Age movement, there are those who who think that suffering is an illusion. Uh, It's a state of mind, they say, that our lives aren't even real. And what we need to do is just release our inner self from our material bodies. This is not that nonsense. In early Christian history, the the Gnostics taught that it was an illusion that Jesus was God in the flesh. You see, they didn't believe that God could suffer. This caused the Apostle John to refute these heretical suggestions by saying that he saw the Lord. He said, I have touched the Lord. He said, I have heard from the Lord. He was real in this body that suffered. John was there at the crucifixion as if... He was there to see it all. He saw what happened. He looked up into the face of Jesus. He saw the agony that was there. There wasn't an imaginary happening. That's not imaginary. Not only was it real, it's substantially real. You know, sometimes we feel like God has abandoned us. You may get out of fellowship with God. Seems at times that you don't know where God is. Uh, You think uh, you just can't contact God. You can't find him. If you're a born-again believer, you know this has happened to you at some time or another. You feel like, wow, I'm just so low. I'm so far down. God must not be out there. And you have difficulty reaching God with your prayers. But the truth is, and you soon find out, God never abandoned you. God was always there, but not with Christ. God really did abandon Jesus in this moment. So this is not... This is not a cry from a delirious fever. Here is Jesus hanging on the cross and his mind is clear. And do you notice there's even this slight, this slight modicum of compassion when they offered him wine that's mingled with burr. That's in verse number 23. And that's what they did sometimes to, to ease the suffering of a criminal. But Jesus refused that. He didn't want any of the suffering eased because he knew what he was doing. This is what it took to pay the penalty of our sins. And so right up to the end he bore up the nails, the suffering. He took all of that at its very worst. But then to be forsaken by God, this is what caused him to cry out. So he doesn't ask why Peter denied him three times. He doesn't ask why Judas that he befriended would betray him. He didn't ask why did all the disciples flee and no one stands with me. No, he could bear up under all of that. Here at this very moment, he's separated from the presence of God. There is nothing as substantial as being forsaken by God. And Jesus was because of sin. And I would tell you, if you don't have your sins forgiven in Christ, that you are separated from God. And unless that problem is remedied, you will be separated from God forever. There is nothing as substantial as being an outsider to God. But thank God for this, that you as a believer, you never experience it. You never will experience it. You are the church of the living God. You have fellowship with God. You will never be rejected by God. You can't be. But I can tell you this, before there was this church that you sit in here today, there must be a cross. Not a cross for you or me. Oh, even though we were the ones that were so fully deserving of it. There was a cross for Jesus who never deserved it. The perfect Son of God who knew no sin became sin for us. And to do that, he had to be rejected by his Father. Never happened before. Never could happen before. But it's all planned. And he took it. It was substantial because it was eternal. I mean, what's more substantial than what takes place in the council halls of eternity? That's where this was determined. Now next, please understand that the rejection was strange. Who can believe this? Is this how God treats His servants? Does God treat His children this way? Ones that love Him? Children that serve Him? Does God leave us? Does God abandon us? Well, we've already answered that question. No, He never does. How strange it was, because we're not speaking of the disobedient. This is not the wayward. This is not fallible, children. This is the only begotten Son. This is the Holy One of the Father. This is the Son who is one with His Father. And so he experienced something that in eons of times past had never been experienced. No wonder when Luther sat here and looked at this verse, he was so perplexed by that. Jesus was one with the Father forever. One in intention. One in heart. One in plan. One in their love. One, in their purpose for humanity, but not at this moment. And it's so absolutely strange. To Jesus, the love of the Father was everything, and to be without that love was devastating. How could this be? When this was the Father who said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. How could he now reject him? That's strange. Strange beyond strange. Do you think that those Jews who said, if you are the Christ, come down from the cross, do you think they could understand this? There was no conceivable concept of religion that said, God would do this to the faithfully obedient. (laughs) Maybe to those who never obeyed God. And didn't the Jews, didn't they think that they were favored by God? Because they said, we keep the commandments. Well then, who more than Jesus Christ who said it's always His purpose to do the Father's will. And not only was it His purpose, He did it. He always did it. And that's why the Father said He was pleased with Him. So how strange now that one in perfect obedience could be so soundly and thoroughly rejected that the Father shunned Him and turned His back on Him. I defy anybody to explain it. I defy anyone Luther, and ten times the theologian of Luther, couldn't understand this or explain it. I know you and I can't. I mean, how many times in our disobedience and rebellion, how many times have we turned to the Father and we said, Father, forgive me. And haven't we found Him faithful and just to always forgive us and to cleanse us from all of our sins? And then, not only that, but to receive us joyfully as the prodigal that has returned. How strange that he wouldn't do it for his own perfect son. And then fifthly, the rejection was severe. After what you've just heard, that's a great understatement, isn't it? It was more severe for him than it would be for us. Jesus was perfectly holy. We're sinful. A rupture with the Heavenly Father must have been something totally abnormal, painful. It was totally dreadful it's awful it's a catastrophe for jesus now we get so hardened by our sin and disobedience that and rebellion that we can't even sense we we can't sense even what it means to have fellowship with the father broken but perfect holiness knew jesus knew this is pain that can't be measured he must have communion with god or he's desolate so it was in the ultimate sense severe and I'm telling you that it was a pain so severe that Jesus, the Holy One, it was so severe that, that, that none of us as hardened sinners could ever experience that. In degree, it's unfathomable to think of the severity of it. J- just think for a moment what it was like to hang on that cross and hear people mock him and jeer him and tell him to come down from the cross. Save yourself, they said. Prove who you are. Do you think human flesh didn't want to do that? Do you think that anyone else hanging there with the power to do it wouldn't come down immediately and crush them all like bugs? Imagine that embarrassment of having these wicked people think that they have the victory over Him and then not to prove them wrong. Imagine the shame that He endured as He hung there naked between heaven and earth and the Father wouldn't even look at Him. Imagine that some in the crowd that were at Pentecost They heard Peter's message and only then did they say, Men and brethren, what have we done? What must we do to be saved? And the question comes back, why would he save them? Why would he do that? Why would he care for them? Why not in their insolence, why not just speak the word and destroy them all and at the very same time reject the father who rejected him? That's a turmoil, isn't it? Severe turmoil, unexplainable, that's all that we can say. But it does explain some things, doesn't it? It explains Gethsemane. You remember the night before the crucifixion, Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane and the word of God says, great sweat drops of blood came popping out of his forehead and he said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. He never shrunk back from the anticipation of the physical pain. Nothing that physical death would cause him. He never shrunk back from the beatings, from the mocking, from the cursing, from betrayal of friends that he would endure. No, it's the anticipation of separation and rejection from his father that he would knew as he hung there bleeding and dying on a cross for sin. He knew what was in the cup. He knew the cup contained the wrath of God. What Jesus knew was, was, was that a dreadful storm was about to be unleashed on Him. He knew what would happen in those six hours as He hung on the cross. Our text verses say there was darkness over the earth from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. That darkness was anticipated because in it was the wrath of God. The wrath of God is on the way. And when He's in the garden, He drank that cup of the undiluted wrath of God against sin. He knew that that represented that wrath. And so he drank that cup down to the bitter dregs. It was so severe that we can't imagine the depths of it. But I want you to notice one thing more. You need to hear another word that describes the person on the cross. The rejection was for substitution. In other words, it's the rejection of a holy God against our sins. We deserve the rejection, not him. He would be rejected to substitute for our rejection. This is why the scripture says that he died in our place. He suffered for us. He experienced separation for us. He took our sins on him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. We sing about it. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But in truth, that question was rhetorical. He knew the answer to it. He knew why God forsook him. God forsook him because he was standing For us, God forsook him because he was hanging there in our place. There was certainly nothing in Christ that would cause God to reject him. He was perfectly holy. There's no sin in him. But because of this, because our sins were placed on him, he had to experience the alienation and rejection of God. He bore the sinner's sin, and so this means that he must bear the sinner's death. And let me tell you something else about that. He gave full consent to it. He gave full consent to the suffering and the separation and the rejection as if he had committed every transgression himself. He never said to those who passed by, I shouldn't be here. I'm not responsible. I never did anything. Oh, he hung there as if he was the criminal, as if he'd done everything himself. He wasn't put to death for his crimes. He was put to death for ours. It was substitutionary. And there, folks, is the stark necessity of the cross. For God God to maintain his standard of righteousness, sin cannot go unpunished. And if Jesus was to bear our sins, then the full wrath of a sin-hating God had to be poured out on his own son. Thank God it was in our place. Thank God... That as his church, we don't have to go to the cross ourselves. It was substitutionary. So the cross tells us something about what happened to the person who was there. It was the rejection of Christ by his Father. I, I think, you know, that first thing, that, that, that's probably enough for us to contemplate today. Each of these points alone, taken alone, is overwhelming the rejection was scriptural, it was spiritual, it was substantial, it was strange, it was severe, and it was in substitution for us. Now There are other aspects of the cross that I want to consider. This one is about the person who hung there. We still need to discuss the people that put him there. We need to talk more about the God who allowed him to be there. And then some more about the reason he was there. I hope that you'll think about what's been said. Now sometimes in our many lessons on the church, we we talk about the decorum of the church, we speak of the worship of the church, we talk about duties of the church, the people of the church, and sometimes in all of that, talking about all the peripherals of the church, we forget about the Christ of the church. We forget about His cross. But before we could have this church, there must be a cross. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. You cannot look at the cross and think of his church and think, that doesn't matter. That's insignificant. It really doesn't matter if I'm a part of the Lord's church or not. It doesn't matter my sin. It doesn't matter what I've done. You've got to look at the one who hung on the cross and why he was there and what he did. You can't pass by this. And so I hope you remember what Christ was willing to do. If you're not a Christian today, I pray the Holy Spirit will open your heart to receive this truth of what Jesus did. You ought not to be a part of the mocking crowd. You don't pass by the cross and say, Oh, there's nothing substantial done there. No, Christ on the cross changed eternity. He changed history. And He changed the destiny of all who believe. We ask you, we implore you, we exhort you, come to him, trust him, repent of your sins, believe him. The cross was there so that you could be a part of the church that he gave his life for. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, our subject is too big today. Too much for us to think about. Too much for human minds to comprehend. How can we consider this subject, thinking of Christ and what he did, and not be so awed, so totally taken back and taken down, crushed in the dust of the earth, to see what he was willing to do for us who are vile, wicked sinners. The perfect Son of God became sin for us. Took all the beatings, all the mocking, all the shame that went to the cross with the cross because of that great love that he has for us. An overflowing love so that the grace of God touches the heart of the lost sinner and brings him to saving faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for all that you have done for us. We pray, Lord, that you'd open the heart of some sinner today. And if everyone here should be saved, open the eyes of Christians today. To think back on the cross and what's done. And what our duty is to that one who gave his all for us. How can we do less than to give our all for him? Well, we praise your name today. We thank you for the season of Christmas. And we know that your birth was because you came to die. You came to die for sinners. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation